I think that I have always naturally kind of uh, an interest to help the underdog. And um, that's so why you support f- this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good podcast. Are you kidding me? Welcome to another episode of Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. As per usual, joining me is Brandon Hurlbutt, clean tech investor, founder of the government affairs firm Boundary Stone Partners, former Department of Energy chief of staff and climate advocate. He's also our Democrat on this podcast. Howdy, Brandon. How are you? I hear you've been uh, out karaokeing at your company holiday party. You going to break out a little bit of that on the podcast today? Nobody wants that. Uh, we <laughs> did have a little bit of a rowdy uh, party. Unfortunately, we missed uh, Shane, but we'll have to do it another time. Yeah, it's a bit of a conspiracy. They had the L.A. party when I was in D.C. working away for our clients and then the D.C. party when I was in L.A. working away for our clients. So starting to feel a little personal. I don't know. (laughs) That is, of course, Shane Skelton, our resident Republican on this show. He's also here. He was previously an energy advisor to Congressman Paul Ryan. Today, he's a policy advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental policy issues, also at Boundary Stone Partners, which hosted this epic holiday party, which I didn't get to go to either, I would add. You were invited. You were one of the few (laughs) non-Boundary Stone people invited to the party. That's honestly an honor. I, I, I appreciate that. Well, it's been so much fun to work together with you guys on this podcast, but I think we have to announce something to our listeners, which is that after 160 episodes and four years of interviews, debates, friendly banter... We are going to take a break. We're taking, I guess, another break. It's not our first on this podcast. We did take one back in, gosh, January 2021. It was just after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. It felt like a, a difficult time. It was hard to know the path forward. It's hard to know how to have these conversations, trying to create a space for different perspectives on climate when it just felt like, you know, all dialogue had kind of broken down. So what's nice about this moment is that we're taking a pause, not because of anything negative, but because there's too much work to do on climate. We're all so busy, and that's because so much has changed since we launched Political Climate back in 2018. Again, we started this podcast to create a space for respectful, informative, and fun dialogues on the policy and politics of climate and energy. Back in 2018, things were really divided. Climate action at the federal level had largely stalled, and it felt a little bit like wandering through the wilderness trying to find a path forward. Wait, it was like 2017. I was going to say, well, that's what it formed as a podcast. We will all lovingly remember what we call the hostage uh, video, (laughs) where the three of us were on Facebook Live, jammed in a tiny WeWork room, looking like we were fighting for our lives. But in actuality, we were just having climate debates. Wasn't that as early as 2016 or was that 2017 when we were going, yeah, going to the WeWork, not even in in the studio? I thought it was 2017. It was 2017. Yeah. And then we started going to Topanga. Right. We would drive up there to the studio. We went to my friend Max's studio. That's where Shane and I would just drink beers and (laughs) talk on this microphone. Entertaining episodes. Lots of opinions here. Lots of opinions. Especially after two beers. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that's when Shane would make fun of me for driving an EV. And now he's a big EV advocate and drives one himself. There you go. See, lots has changed since we launched this podcast and originally video program. So that was 2017. 2018, I was at Green Tech Media. And thanks to Stephen Lazy, who I have to give a shout out to, who uh, was the infamous host of the Energy Gang, now runs Postscript Media. He helped launch us, get us on our on all the podcast feeds, has been a great support over the years. So with his help, we launched this on Green Tech Media and this became a real show. It's crazy to think that we've actually recorded this in Southern California, where we're all based, but also I've recorded episodes in Abu Dhabi. We were all together in Vienna. We've recorded in New Haven, Connecticut at Yale. We've recorded in Sun Valley, Idaho. It's kind of wild, all the places we've taken this show. Shane recorded in the DNC headquarters? I did. Oh my gosh, that's so true. I actually still have somewhere in my house, I have the paycheck from Yale because I just thought it was so funny that I'd ever get a paycheck from Yale when they like gave us our stipend (laughs) back. Felt like I'd made it. And Ivy League school was paying us for our time. Yeah, when you go back to that time, you know, of course, President Trump was in office. There was controversy at the EPA. 
Since then, we saw the rise of the youth climate movement. There was the introduction of the Green New Deal. Flash forward, there was COVID, economic shocks. Then we saw, of course, the Biden presidency, introduction of the Build Back Better agenda. That was a whole roller coaster, which we covered very closely. And now, finally, ending 2022, having seen the largest clean energy package in the history of the country become law. So I actually think this has been one of the most consequential periods of time for climate policy, full stop. I mean, would you guys agree? I feel like if we reached back, and Julia, I know that we've listened to a lot of these episodes in anticipation for this one, but we were pretty spot we? on. <laughs> well, I was trying to give us credit, Brandon. Thanks for that. Uh, Julia, I did. We listened to a lot of episodes in anticipation of this. We like nailed the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, sans the title. Early on, you might recall, there were a number of discussions about this type of policy and this type of policy that could be shoehorned into reconciliation. And we talked about constantly like what reconciliation is, how it works, what they can do, what they can't do, what they should do. And if you look back at some of those episodes, we were pretty damn close on what ended up being a final package compared to our, our other peers in the, in the media and the podcast space. So I feel pretty good about that, too. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky to have guests on like John Podesta, like Harry Reid, who were you know predicting what would happen based on what has happened in the past and how a new administration on the Democrat side would navigate policy waters. And sure enough, we Didn't saw we that happen. Didn't we win an award for that episode? <laughs> we won an award for a different episode uh, that... Uh, I thought it was the Harry Reid episode. Uh, we might have been a finalist for that one. I'm pretty sure hmm. we won an award for an episode recorded in Vienna after we stayed out till 5 a.m. gambling. Wait, should we edit that part out? <laughs> no, that's fine. It was fun. And I'll tell you what, Julia, I was a credentialed member of the press for three days and you were for about 15 years and I have as many awards <laughs> as you do. So think about that for a minute. <laughs> I have other awards. Um, I just need to find out about them. Support for Political Climate comes from Climate Positive, a podcast from Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure the first U.S. public company solely dedicated to investing in climate solutions. With the climate crisis surrounding us, it's easy to let defeatism and complacency creep in, but there's so much to be hopeful for. Climate Positive Podcast features candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and change makers driving our climate positive future. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. I mean, also, Brandon interviewed uh, Greta Thunberg. He was the one who went up to her with the microphone, being all journalistic and whatnot. Hustling for that story. Hustling for that story. I know that at one point people were afraid to tell you things because you're members of the media. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Take that responsibility very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Wild memories. And to your point, Shane, I think we'll spend the rest of the episode going on that journey down memory lane, not just for our own, you know, edification and, and fun, but because I think it actually chronicles a lot of real change that happened in the U.S. climate and energy space and, and kind of look at how things have evolved over the past several years. I will say I'm a little hesitant to say that this podcast is going away forever, ever. We may be back for an emergency pod. There may be a series at some point in our future. So, you know, be aware of that. Don't touch that dial. You never know how this will manifest. There could be some things we really feel like we ought to react to. And frankly, we just feel so lucky to have the listeners that we do. And we really value your time you spent with us and hope to use this podcast platform in some way going forward. And at the very least, you know, we'll keep the conversation going forward on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We have a great library of evergreen content that we'll keep Assuming going Twitter back to. Continues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with that... I got to give a shout out to the Schwarzenegger Institute. They came on board with the podcast in 2019. They really made it a real thing. I quit my job in journalism at a full-time job anyway to like launch a separate company for this podcast at Brandon's behest. He was like, you should do this. Created an LLC, learned how to make this a real deal. We then had awesome sponsors who made this possible. Just this year, we had MCE, Fish Tank PR, Third Way, Hannah Armstrong, We've also had other partners who've supported the show, like Canary Media, the Atlantic Council, EarthX, Our Daily Planet, World War Zero, the DiCaprio Foundation, back when it was an entity and has since evolved. 
And of course, it's our listeners. The greatest honor is to have, you know, the thousands of people who spend time with us all the time. But I mentioned all that with the caveat that the USC Schwarzenegger Institute has really had our back. And to that end, I think it's fun to start with an interview we had with Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. We got to sit down with him a few times and learn how he crafted climate policy as the governor of California. One thing we can say about Governor Schwarzenegger is that he's really good at bringing people together. I think he finds a way to find messaging that resonates with the masses. And you saw that in his videos he posted, you know, after January 6th. If you've seen that video, I think you'll get a sense of how he approaches, uh, you know, tough issues. And it's also true for his work on climate change. His administration successfully beat back Proposition 23 way back in 2010 that would have suspended a major climate bill in California. And they did that by tapping into the messaging around pollution, not climate change, as he explains. He says... Melting ice caps didn't resonate with California voters. Polar bears didn't resonate. It was when they showed imagery of of a child suffering with asthma that actually got voters to turn out and beat back this proposition. So with that, I wanted to share a clip from our interview that we had with Arnold Schwarzenegger that explains how to rise above the fray to get action done on climate. Let's keep it simple. Republicans and Democrats can go and get behind the idea of fighting pollution. President Nixon created the EPA. He was a Republican. He created the EPA because he wanted to make sure that the American people are protected, that they have a healthy life, and they're not being killed by pollution. And that's what's happening now is we have 200,000 people dying of pollution in America. We have 7 million people die of pollution. So when you say to me, he says, what should young Republicans do? Is Young Republicans should be out there rallying and fighting and protesting this stupid thing that politicians cannot really solve this problem, that they're arguing over this. Is this a democratic philosophy or Republican? Is it better for my party or is it better for his party? It's a nonsense dialogue. We got to go and serve the people. People are dying. People are getting cancer because of pollution. There's young children that are having asthma in an early age because of the pollution. I mean, those are inexcusable things that we let happen. We, the government, should always be there to protect the people. What do you guys take away from having interacted with Arnold Schwarzenegger? I I feel like he has maintained that you can bring people together and find messaging that resonates across the aisle. I don't know, Brandon, do you feel like that's any more possible today from your vantage point? It was an amazing privilege to be able to talk about these issues with him. I mean, he is a legend. And I wish that there were still Republicans, you know, like him. I think that's one thing I learned from all these conversations with Shane is the Republican Party of today uh, is very different than, you know, sort of the Republican Party that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in, maybe the Republican Party that, you know, Shane more identifies with. He can speak for himself. But I think when we were having these conversations about Republicans, I learned during this podcast that Shane's views were not representative necessarily of the entire party. It's really been this Trumpism that has dominated the last few years. And maybe that's course correcting now. Uh, you know, there's some evidence of that in the 2022 elections, but that was some, one of my learnings from the podcast and, and working with Arnold. Yeah, I mean, working with Arnold was such a, a great pleasure. Meeting him was such a great pleasure. Um, something you wouldn't have heard on the podcast was that um, he signed a poster for a fundraiser we were doing for our, our children's school. Just a wonderful guy, uh, invested in us, invested in his community, uh, obviously you know, was a, an early champion to fight climate change and pollution, and such a pleasure. It was interesting you know, in talking to him the very first time we met in his offices about what his um, circumstances were like in the governor's office and what type of challenges he faced, not just from the legislature, but also from media personalities who he knew from you know his his life as a movie star, um, and it interacted with a lot of Fox News personalities and a lot of other conservative media personalities. So that was just really fascinating for me to learn from him who he talked to, what they talked about, and what what he faced as he tried to push forward on um, some of the things they did in California, including uh, cap and trade. But what's also interesting is that you know Republicans and Democrats are further apart on almost anything than any time I can possibly remember. Republicans do, for the first time in a long time, have a climate platform. It's certainly not anything most progressive Democrats or climate activists would run on, but it's a lot of the themes that we talked about with some of our Republican guests and that that we've talked about on here earlier, which is exporting innovation, uh, living in a world of plenty, finding a way to address climate with more. And that's something that we've talked with progressive guests about too, like the Rewiring America team. Saul Griffith uh, comes to mind. And so I do think 
there is going to be some common ground on onshoring manufacturing of clean energy technologies, owning um, not just the manufacturing base, but also intellectual property, uh, exporting our solutions. And that could be, you know, different types of direct air capture or other technologies that can help to carbonize countries like China and India that have growing populations and increased energy demand. Um, there's just not a lot of alignment between the parties, but I am excited to see more and more Republicans talking about what are we willing to do? What can we do? They don't want to talk about, you know, how do we find a way to use less energy or how do we find a way to restrict behavior in any given way? But certainly there are discussions about how do we address this problem? What can we invest in? Um, how can we do it together? And while, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act was 100 percent Democrat driven, of course, uh, and passed with all Democrat votes, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which I would argue was one of the, if not the largest investment uh, in addressing climate change in history prior to the Inflation Reduction Act was a bipartisan bill. And I think that's actually really cool. And so while the rhetoric in the political landscape right now is not great, and it's probably worse than it was when we started this podcast, I think some of the actual uh, concrete steps that have been taken in furtherance of addressing climate and protecting the environment have been maybe even, you know, from a, a financial perspective, more than I would have guessed. I mean, for me, the big takeaway is also how to frame these issues in a way that are meaningful to people in their everyday lives, which is something I think Democrats started to do as well in framing the Inflation Reduction Act as how it affects people's pocketbooks. You mentioned rewiring America. It has a calculator for you to figure out how much you can save on your energy bill if you install some kind of home upgrade, whether it's a heat bump or solar or battery. That's making it real for people. And that's something I think Arnold has been you know, banging the drum on for a long time is that these remote faraway issues don't resonate with individuals. And so you have to make it relevant to their everyday life. And so that's a major takeaway for me. And it is indeed an honor to have had the chance to meet him, to work with his team. We have mugs that I just feel so proud and cool to get to use every day with Arnold's like, you know, autograph engraved on them. So uh, not only do we get to learn from him, it really just was such a fun pleasure and life story to have the chance to do that. One thing I think we've talked a lot about on this show is theories of change. Like, how do you solve a problem as massive and complex as climate? You know, we've had a wide range of guests on that I think really speak to that. People like Senator Harry Reid, Representatives Tonko, Sean Kasten, Debbie Dingell. We had former representative on the Republican side, Bob Inglis and Carlos Curbelo. Uh, we also had Neil Chatterjee on, who is a Republican appointee to FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We had Senator Heinrich on twice, who's a major champion for electrification. We had Daniel Simmons, a Trump-era renewable energy chief at the Department of Energy. Other academics, journalists, business leaders, activists, even an astronaut, Scott Kelly, came on the podcast. Um, plus a pro snowboarder, Danny Davis, to talk about how climate change is being reflected in his work on the slope. So I really think we tried to present that there are varying views on how to go about tackling climate change. And I think all of them are really valid and they all make up a, a lot of action and energy at the end of the day that I think got us to where we are in having major pieces of legislation pass. So some of those inspiring guests that I think we've had on the show, though, are youth climate leaders and activists. In 2019, we spoke to Kelsey Juliana and Vic Barrett, two of the plaintiffs in the Juliana v. United States lawsuit over the right to safe climate and livable future. We also spoke to Jonah Gottlieb and J.B. Margolin, co-founder of the organization Zero Hour. We spoke to Julian Brave Noisecat, who was with the organization Data for Progress at the time back in 2020. We even spoke to Greta Thunberg, thanks to Brandon's reporting, and we'll circle back on that later. But I want to dial in now on our interview with Varshini Prakash back in November 2018. She's with the Sunrise Movement, and she helped lead the famous sit-in in Democrat House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office back in 2018. I think that was arguably a turning point for Democrats who weren't really prioritizing climate change on their agenda. Varshini made the point on the show that symbolic committees really aren't enough. There needs to be a mobilization. And inspired by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and groups like Justice Democrats and the Green New Deal movement, the movement really started going after established Democrats. So here's how Varshini framed the Sunrise efforts at the time and why they were targeting Democrats themselves versus anybody else. And so a lot of this action was not to vilify Democratic leadership, but to actually call Democratic leadership to action and to duty in this moment. There is nothing short of essentially a rapid wartime-esque economic mobilization that's actually going to stop this crisis. And we need our Democratic leadership to take the crisis as, as seriously as our generation does. So, Brandon, I know you've been in touch with the Sunrise Movement. You know Varshini. More than in touch. I'm on the board. 
So since then, how would you say the Sunrise Movement has evolved? What, how did that strategy play out? I mean, we kind of know. But when you reflect back on the origins of the Sunrise Movement and how they've evolved today, what can you share with us on, on really the takeaways? I think that the Sunrise 1.0 had historic impact. I think climate change was not the priority uh, that it is now uh, until Sunrise came along. And the Democratic position on climate, they moved the party in a far more progressive direction on climate and made it an urgent issue. The fact that net zero by 2050 is the moderate consensus Democratic position, the Democratic Party did not have that position before sunrise at all. So I think the Green New Deal came along and created a left flank uh, where net zero by 2050 became uh, sort of the moderate position that some of those uh, Democrats could embrace. And so they deserve enormous credit for rallying people to the cause here in a way that had never happened before. Shane, I remember the time you said, you know, power really comes from people who understand how legislating works and not so much from outside the bubble. Do you feel like you have to change that point of view given the impact of these climate activists or do you feel like it still was an inside the bubble game at the end of the day? Yeah, no, I definitely don't. And I thought about it pretty hard. That's not a um, off the cuff remark. As we were preparing for this episode, I was actually thinking about that very specific issue. Oh, you prepared? <laughs> <clears throat> well, you know, <laughs> I was preparing. I did prepare. And I thought about this specifically. I was trying to figure out who was right. Honestly, was Brandon right or was I right? Um, and I think the honest answer is both. It's I mean, both. I think Brandon articulated pretty well how they moved the the Overton window, if you will. But then, you know, the ultimate deal was done between Senator Schumer, Senator Manchin, and a handful of other senators. And if you talk to, you know, staff or members across the House and Senate, most of them were not included. So the process was very much as I articulated. I think the policy framework within which they were working, as Brandon stated, is very, very different than it would have been without that early pressure from those activists. I don't want to, again, put words in your mouth, Brandon, but that's sort of how I see the two. Yeah, you have to have both. You have to have a strong outside game, a strong inside game, and they need to be working together. Well, in a similar vein, I think one of the most powerful conversations we had on political climate was with the Green New Deal architects, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, Damon Drummer, and Zach Exley, who had formed the group New Consensus. It's a think tank that was created to develop and promote a World War II scale mobilization to fix America's most pressing economic and environmental problems. The Green New Deal was really at the center of that, but there was more. They were trying to build out an entire framework, sort of a whole new worldview, if you will. So we spoke to Rihanna, Damon, and Zach back in April 2019. This was shortly after Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey had released the Green New Deal framework, just kind of the bones of what it was. And while there was an outline, again, there was still a lot that needed to be done to flesh out what the Green New Deal would be. So that's what Rihanna and others were taking on through new consensus. They really wanted to shake up the system. It, it felt to me like the climate protests had got people's attention by this point. And then new consensus was kind of coming in to help come up with like the plan and what happens next. So here's how Rihanna Gunwright talked about it in the context of learning from the past, learning from the previous New Deal movement and preparing for the future of climate action and looking ahead to the 2020 election. One of the things that the Green New Deal is about is about doing that sort of planning that they did before so that when the moment comes, when the time comes, wherever that moment is, hopefully like right after the election, we're ready right? We're ready and we're ready with solutions that have equity and justice at the center. And we're not only reactive, but we are actually active. And then there's so many other cool things that they did, like part of figuring out how to build these things, there were government arsenals. So like in World War II and New Deal, I think there's a strong thread of experimentation and the ways that the government sort of experiments to innovate, not just in technologies, but also in how do you put people to work, right? How do you get local communities to lead. A lot of WPA projects were locally led, right? Locally decided, locally defined. You're doing this all over the country, right? It's It was about sort of how do we try out new modes of supporting folks? I would love, I mean, I know that, that this is it, right? We're celebrating the end of the year and, and the end of, of the podcast for now, but I would love to have that conversation right now with those same exact uh, trio because there was some consternation post-passage of EJ and IRA. 
uh, and some discussion about whether or not uh, environmental justice and equity were at the at the middle of these policies. I think, um, considering the the political climate that we're in, no pun intended, you know what was advanced was was incredibly impressive, but. Not all of the response uh, from the environmental justice community was positive. And I'd be curious to know, you know, that same interview, how it would age, um, you know, now that we are where we are. Yeah. Brandon, do you have thoughts on that? Like, do you feel like we got close to that World War II scale mobilization that was really like the driving philosophy behind the Green New Deal in what we did? And to Shane's point, was it as equitable, the bills that we saw passed in recent months Uh, as people were hoping they would be, and as locally led and controlled. There are threads of all of those themes within the Inflation Reduction Act. We've talked on this podcast about the industrial policy uh, between those three pieces of legislation, and you have elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, like 45X, where we are paying companies to make these products. That is how we won the war. The U.S. government paid private companies like Ford and GM and GE to make the arsenal democracy that Rihanna mentioned in that clip. And we're doing the same thing now. You're not just getting a one-time tax credit for the facility. You're getting paid for every wafer, every module, every battery that is produced in those factories. And so you see the, the hints of the Green New Deal in that legislation, and it is done in many parts with an equity lens, you know, they're standing up the $27 billion green bank, uh, the GGF at the EPA, right? And most of that has to go to disadvantaged communities. And it's about supporting local projects and ideas uh, for this. So when we restarted the show, we, we would have said $27 billion green bank. We would have been like, wow, that's like, that's, that's huge. That's like a footnote in the, all of this, right? <laughs> And, and, and there are massive incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act and the other pieces of legislation to deploy into disadvantaged communities. I think that got lost a little bit. I think people looked at just the grants and they compared it to the overall number. But like $8,000 rebate for heat pump for disadvantaged communities means you get a free heat pump. <laughs> so uh, a lot of these technologies are going to be deployed in those areas because it will simply make the developers uh, with a higher profit margin. And that that's intended. So – I do think there are elements of it, and I think it's going to be exciting to see how all of it plays out. I think that some of those folks will, will – it's not everything that we need you know, because we're getting closer to 2030. We're about to hit 2023, so we have to keep accelerating and going faster. We can't stop with these pieces of legislation, but we got a lot more done considering we had a split Senate with you know Joe Manchin casting the deciding vote than I think many people thought was possible. Right. And the three pieces you're talking about there are the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and then the Chips and Science Act, which helps yes. support the semiconductor industry. Still waiting, for, I think, for some money to be allocated uh, for that bill to realize its full potential, as we've covered on the show. But nonetheless, three massive bills that really invest um, in onshoring the clean energy transition and communities as well. And you mentioned the arsenal of democracy. I have to also give a shout out for the series that we did do with Third Way this year called The Arsenal of Clean Energy that explores that exact theme of how do we make it here, deploy it here, and export it abroad, that being all the clean energy solutions uh, that we need to have a livable planet. So check out that series if you haven't yet. Brandon, you also just mentioned the idea of time and the urgency around this. And so another theme that came to mind as I looked back at our podcast was The urgency created by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report back in 2018 that found we have 12 years to act to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Now, usually these reports are super wonky. No one pays attention to them. But I think that one somehow broke through. That sort of 12 years to act, I think, really got reflected in a lot of the youth climate movement uh, language. It really struck a chord and kind of connected the today to the future. And so at the Austrian World Summit in 2019, which is an event that Arnold Schwarzenegger hosts back in his home country, a really fantastic event, we had the chance to sit down with United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres to discuss what the science shows. And here's how he described the urgency around this. What is dramatic is that even the commitments made in Paris that are not enough are not being fully met by several of the countries involved and some of them relevant ones. So we are losing the race. Climate change is running faster than what we are. We are not winning the battle. And we need to uh, sound the alarm. 
this is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit to 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And the scientific community is very clear. 1.5 degrees is really the maximum that we can tolerate, point number one. Point number two, to reach 1.5 degrees in the end of the century, we must be carbon neutral in 2050. And that is a very demanding objective, but it is possible. We can do it. It's a matter of political will. The technology is on our side. The green energy today is the most profitable one. It's cheaper than uh, energy produced by fossil fuels. We see technological evolution uh, uh, always in the right direction, but we still lack political will. So we saw the urgency of the science reflected in the youth movement. I think kind of picking up on what the secretary was saying there, it was also starting to be reflected in the business community. We saw investors start to shift real money into the clean energy sector. We saw heads of state and others start to up their climate commitments. But flash forward to today, just a few weeks after COP27 in Egypt, we do still find ourselves off the mark. Just recently, the UN released a progress report that showed countries are bending the curve on addressing greenhouse gas emissions. But it found that at the end of the day, efforts remain insufficient to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So I don't know, Brandon, what do you think about that urgency? Do you feel the same kind of angst that maybe we all did a couple years ago when it felt like really there was no path forward? Or has some of that anxiety been assuaged by the recent actions? Does it feel like, you know, we have broken through and we can make more progress and accelerate it? Or does that same kind of looming deadline of, you know, we got 12 years to act and we have to reach this net zero by 2050 kind of feel like, you know, still out of reach? No, I still feel the urgency and we're still experiencing these extreme weather events that keep showing what a crisis that we're in. And I do just feel more optimistic uh, than when we started the show, because back then we had, you know, Donald Trump as president. He was questioning like wind turbines, questioning the science. You know, that was a really dark place uh, to be in for climate. But now over these last two years, we've given ourselves like a real chance to meet these goals. And I'm seeing, you know, in my work, the most incredible founders, uh, young people starting the most amazing climate technology companies that are so exciting. Seeing this historic activity, you know, from the federal government and other states like California, New York, where they're providing the right incentives to help these companies scale. Seeing these corporations set ambitious, you know, climate goals and go all in on it. Seeing the capital flowing. I mean, if you look at the broader market right now in the U.S., you know, it's been struggling. You know, but in climate. People are raising funds. They're deploying capital. Uh, Valuations are going up. So it's counter to the rest of the market. And so I just see uh, incredible innovation, partnerships, collaboration happening. Uh, And that's because you need all of those things to work together. You need the government. You need uh, the entrepreneurs. You need the big incumbents. You need the finance community. And I really have seen that all come together the last few years. Yeah. Picking up on the point that Antonio Guterres made at the end of that clip, how renewables are now cheaper to produce than fossil fuels and becoming more profitable. I mean, that's a major breakthrough. It's, you know, many countries can now see these economic benefits. And that's, again, being reflected in how dollars are flowing. To your point, Brandon, I think back to 2020 when BlackRock CEO Larry Fink sent shockwaves through the financial sector when he talked about in his annual letter the fact that BlackRock will be putting climate change at the center of its investment strategy And it wasn't just BlackRock, it was a bunch of pension funds, other banks. That whole movement to green the capital has also been a big trend recently. And we can talk about whether or not, you know, it's fully genuine, is it greenwashing or not. But that change in tone, I think, has been reflected in dollar amounts. We have seen year over year more money flowing into clean energy. The bigger question is whether it's flowing out of fossil fuels. But the dialogue around climate risk has changed too. That's now clearly understood that as an investor, as a corporation, there are risks to the infrastructure you've put money into. Physical risks from big storms, for instance, but also the risk of stranded assets. As cleaner resources become cheaper, you could be stuck holding the the tab on an asset that nobody wants anymore. So I think that's a major shift that's happened recently. 
And to that end, we launched a series on political climate a couple years ago called Ditched, Fossil Fuels, Money Flows, and the Greening of Finance. Was this like your solo album? Yeah, this is my solo album. You guys weren't a part of it. You didn't have any time. (laughs) The ditch was all about following divestment, which started symbolically sort of denying social license to the fossil fuel industry and asking individuals to move their money out of fossil fuel stocks. But it's evolved a lot. And as I heard from Justin Gway on the podcast, it's not your grandpa's divestment anymore. Today, we're talking about a much more sophisticated movement. Actors are systematically denying access to capital and capital markets to the fossil fuel industry. It's reflected in everything from lenders to insurers, development banks, export credit agencies, et cetera, et cetera. Here is how Justin summed up this massive movement in changing how money flows. What began as, you know, in many ways, a symbolic action to take a stand against fossil fuels has morphed into this sophisticated set of strategies that, as one industry analyst put it, is like an anaconda slowly strangling its prey and uh, really uh, denying the fossil fuel industry access to the capital it so desperately needs. So, Brandon, are you seeing that in your work as well, that like the capital flows are actually shifting not only just into clean tech, but maybe away from fossil fuels now? Yeah. I mean, I think, as you said, Julia, those are long-term assets. And a lot of these companies see the the writing on the wall. A lot of these funds that did traditional investments into oil and gas are moving towards clean energy in a pretty aggressive way, Uh, not just because of the urgency of the, the crisis, but the opportunity to make money. As you said, like these costs are cheaper now. And there's lots of better products out there uh, like heat pumps and such. And so I think that people see the opportunity there and that's where the capital has been flowing. A stat I just looked up for this was U.S. startups in the clean tech space have raised a total of nearly $40 billion across 600 venture deals just in 2021, which is five times more VC funding than in, in 2016 in the clean tech space. So we're seeing this exponential increase I do think what's interesting, though, is now these shifts are starting to be challenged. And so, Shane, I want to ask you, there is this pushback against ESG, environmental social governance policies, this pushback against a sort of woke agenda in the investment community by states like Florida and Texas. They are seeing this trend of divestment and and prioritizing where capital is placed and, and pushing back. So what do you make of that? Is this all hot air? Is there some real you know, legal teeth to this? What are we to make of this pushback on the movement from the investment community? I mean, whether there's legal teeth to it, I don't know. I think um, the, the positive side is that capital is going to continue to go to clean energy technology and capital is going to continue to go to building out domestic manufacturing and domestic capabilities in clean energy technology. So I don't think any of that is at risk, uh, whether economically, politically or otherwise. I think the aspects of ESG that are being challenged are commitments to divest from fossil assets. And I don't know nearly enough about what type of fiduciary duty you have uh, to your investors and what it takes to demonstrate that you are uh, being a good fiduciary. I mean, there's plenty of, of evidence that investing in fossil assets can be really harmful because you can have a bunch of stranded assets. I mean, these aren't two-year assets. These are 30, 40, 50-year assets. And so if these investment managers you know, have done their homework and can show why they're doing what they're doing, which is the best use of capital is to drive it into a clean economy. And that's going to ultimately earn the best return on uh, value for our shareholders. Then there can't possibly be any legal consequences to that. There can be, you know, hearings, there can be arguments, there can be political debates, but you don't have a legal obligation to share someone's politics. You just have a fiduciary duty to your investors. And so I think it will be um, a very common topic of discussion. I think there are going to be subpoenas and investigations, especially by Republicans in the House of Representatives, uh, to figure out why did you make these decisions? But I have to imagine, and I don't know this, but I have to imagine these large institutional investors can show their work. Uh, I have to imagine that they've modeled out a lot of these scenarios, um, that they've disclosed to their shareholders what they're doing. I mean, in my own retirement account, I have ESG funds selected, both because I want to Um, but also because I think it's going to get a better ROI in the long term. So yes, it's going to be a busy topic of discussion, but I don't think there's a legal there there, um, though I I don't claim to be a professional uh, in the the investment space. I will say that the closest nexus to politics are these SEC rules. I think the SEC rules would actually be quite helpful because 
you're providing information to investors. And with that information, they can do whatever they please, which I actually think is how investing should work. Um, but that seems to be the most direct nexus because it is a federal agency acting on an authority that may or may not be granted by Congress. That's a semantic of regulatory law. Um, but it's pretty difficult to argue that investors shouldn't have access to information that they might find useful. And the context there is the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission has proposed rules to enhance and standardize climate-related disclosures to investors. I think we're still waiting for those rules to be finalized, but if they were, you could see that becoming the subject of more intense political debate, but perhaps still helpful to the private sector. Well, yeah, and incidentally, I think it would actually further even Republican objectives because once you're forced to disclose your actual emissions footprint, then you are going to be held accountable for the commitments that you've made or the claims that you've made, right? And so when you have to file a legal document saying you've done X, Y, and Z, if that doesn't align with what you've been telling the public, that's a problem for you. That doesn't mean that environmentally sound investing is bad, but I think it will force companies to actually put their money where their mouth is, or at least disclose that they're not. And all that information is good. I mean, traditional, my Republican party wanted information in the market so that investors could act and capital could move. That, that's how you efficiently deploy capital. So it'll be interesting, but it'll be fun to watch. Continuing along this thread, one of our most popular interviews we've ever done was actually with world-renowned thought leader, entrepreneur, and educator, Tony Siba. We spoke to him in August 2020, shortly after he released the book, Rethinking Humanity. And it predicted that the 2020s will be the most disruptive decade in history, not just in terms of energy technology, but across every major industry in the world today. This disruption will have major implications for policymaking and geopolitics and civilization as a whole, according to Tony Siba. We covered a lot of ground in that episode. It's really worth a listen. Here's a clip from that discussion about past predictions Tony had and how he sees this playing out for the future of clean tech. All of those have been right on the money. Solar as the cheapest form of energy by 2020, that's been on the money without subsidies. EVs reaching about $30,000 for a 200-mile EV, that's been on the money. I you know, forecast that oil prices would crash to about $25 a barrel, 2021. Guess what? We did it this year because of another disruption. So those are really macro predictions, huge predictions that have been, you know, exactly on the money. So when I say that by 2030, you know, and I've been saying that for years, as you know, essentially, you know, the conventional energy and transportation industry would be disrupted. Uh, I have meant that it's going to be over by 2030, right? It's going to be over. Brandon, is the clean energy disruption going to be over by 2030? Are we on pace to do that? Are we seeing the startups you work with really like deploy at a pace and scale, you think, to to see additional disruptions like Tony talks about? Oh, I think there'll be additional ones beyond 2030. Some of this stuff is really hard, like the negative emissions, pulling, you know, pollution out of the existing, you know, atmosphere. You know, that could take a while, especially to scale. You know, we've got on power generation storage, you know, a lot of proven technologies that are cheaper uh, that we just need to deploy, you know, more quickly, like solar and wind. And on EVs, Tony's right, you know, the total cost of ownership of many of these vehicles is cheaper. But on the like industrial emissions and such, I still think we're going to need some more breakthroughs that could take a little bit of time. But with all the policy activity, you can go to the DOE, get money for a clean energy demonstration plant, uh, those type of things. That's what it's really incentivizing. But, you know, there's going to be an announcement tomorrow about fusion, right? A scientific breakthrough. So who knows where, you know, some of those things may go uh, as well. I, I will always bet on American innovation and entrepreneurism. We need more of it. Uh, that's what some, it's in some of the Chips and Science Act. That's the climate angle. A lot of money for research. Uh, so we just got to keep going until we have this thing totally solved. It does feel like we backtrack sometimes because, Tony talked about the price of oil reaching $27, but it's back up at $70 a barrel today. We've seen the war on Ukraine start to royal global oil markets again. OPEC is weighing in. China's opening and closing its economy. There are other disruptions that continue to happen that make some of these achievements, I think, more difficult, although also an opportunity to accelerate clean energy. But it's all in what we do with it. So I'm not sure there's totally foregone conclusion that we will fully be living in a clean tech world by 2030. Um, but certainly fun to think about the disruptions that will happen, and there will certainly be some. 
I think some of the things that Tony talked about, and I'd be, you know, I'm interested in what Shane thinks is that while I right now, you know, favor a stronger federal government, particularly on some of these energy markets right now, 50 different PUCs, having to navigate all of that makes it harder to deploy at scale. We're seeing some of this with like the permitting reform and all of that. So right now, you know, I think having a stronger federal government where you can um, have more sort of seamless ways to uh, engage on some of the compliance. But with these technologies, it may create a disruption where things become more localized. Like if you can get all of your energy from around where you live because of, you know, distributed energy and you could do vertical farming, you don't have to get your food from, you know, a state far away. You can just do all that locally. We already see people are segregating where they live based on the values that they have. Uh, you see that that's part of the polarization we have in this country. People are really self-segregating, moving to different areas uh, with like minds. So if you have these technologies that can give you basically everything you want locally and you don't need to get stuff from you know states from far away, maybe that makes a strong central government less necessary. <laughs> and I think Tony talked about some of those concepts and totally. maybe in the end we'll end up in, you know, what Shane likes in a more decentralized, you know, where local control uh, is more what people have at their disposal. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm obviously a fan of local control um, sort of ideologically, but I do um and any technology that could help get us there and, and help us do all the things that we want to do without needing to, to cross multiple states would be fantastic. My concern is that it is almost impossible to build anything right now. And to deploy clean energy generation at scale, you are going to need to be able to connect areas where there is sufficient landmass to deploy these technologies to areas where there's sufficient demand. Um, if you can't get power generated from whatever it is, um, a, a solar farm, a wind facility. But there's all sorts of new new types of uh, zero carbon generation coming online that can really you know, feed a lot of our, our demand-heavy uh, areas and, and cities. It's going to be really difficult to do anything. And interestingly, while Republicans have always been a lot more focused on state rights and landowner rights, they've tr also traditionally been supportive of large infrastructure projects uh, and not as much you know, in the NIMBY camp or not as concerned about NEPA and the Endangered Species Act and all the different things that you have to go through to permit, that's actually changing quite a bit. Um, you're seeing Republicans express in, in red states some of the same landowner concerns that we've heard traditionally uh, from environmentalists. And so it is getting very, very difficult to build anything in this country. And ironically, Brandon and I are sort of on opposite sides of this and in the inverse way. But I would like to see some sort of federal role in, in saying here are projects of particular interest to the United States of America. And as a result, here's what needs to be done to get these projects deployed and off the ground. And you don't have a veto. You don't have the right to say no. That does not mean that you don't have to, you know, pay landowners or, or, or something like that uh, using eminent domain and make sure that people are justly compensated. It does not mean you don't need to protect the environment. It does not mean you don't have to protect waterways and vulnerable communities. I'm not saying that at all. But at a certain point, you need some centralized body to say this project is in the u.s's best interest we are going to build it moving on you know and get going with that and so kind of a funny dynamic where brandon and i might fall on opposite sides no i think we agree on that i agree with everything you said political climate bringing people together <laughs> so one thing that kind of fell off the radar policy wise and we talked about it in our episode called decarb madness with jesse jenkins and leah stokes is the concept of a clean energy standard. That was really one of the key policy areas, you know, moving on from the Green New Deal, we started looking at the Build Back Better agenda. And one of the hallmark, you know, central pieces of that was a clean energy standard, a national level policy to reach certain level of clean energy deployment by a certain year. That ultimately got stripped from the final version of the Inflation Reduction Act. And so I wanted to ask both of you, it felt like that was critical to meeting our climate goals at the time. At least people were talking about it does it make you think the fact that the CES didn't make it in and we're still celebrating all the achievements of IRA that, you know, there really are multiple ways to get climate action done? Like a lot of times I think people stick to their one solution and think it's the only way. Does this a reminder that there could be different ways to, I hate the phrase, skin a cat? <laughs> and we should say that um, the clean energy standard was supposed to help get the U.S. to 50% emissions reductions by 2030. 
And IRA, which passed without the CES, would get us to 42% emission reductions by 2030. So I guess there's a case to be made that we're not on track, but still IRA got done and that's more important than nothing. So I have always said uh, there were two different things with the clean energy standard. One was just, does it work in the vehicle of reconciliation? That's a a statutory issue, right? That's not a matter of what's the right policy and are there different ways to attack the same problem? Um, And it doesn't, and it never did. And so um, that just sort of was what it was. The other piece of it is, I'm not sure how much more effective that type of policy, even though I've always supported one, not always, that's not true, Uh, but I've supported one in recent years. Um, (laughs) But I I don't- API Shane didn't support No, he definitely did not. Um, I just don't know how important it is without some of the incentives that were put in place over the last couple of years and without some of the permitting issues that we just discussed. Building out generation alone isn't going to solve the problem. And the reason for that is A, as you all know, and everyone knows, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So you got to deploy storage assets and those have to be well-placed and you have to have you know regional interconnected grids. And you do this by building out transmission infrastructure and you've got to have visibility even into distribution systems so that you know where power is needed when it's needed there uh, so you don't try to overbuild. So it's a great idea to say that you know, 50%, 60%, 70% of energy demand should be met by clean resources. But the reality of it is that is not possible under current world circumstances. You can add enough capacity to meet the gross you know, amount of demand that's needed, but you still need far more granular policies. You need a regional energy market everywhere. There is none in the West and the Southeast right now. You need connective infrastructure. It's a must. You've got to deploy storage and not just deploy it in mass, but also deploy it strategically. And you have to have visibility into where energy is being used and when. There is no other way to do this. And so clean energy standard would be great because I think it would be a driver of additional deployment of renewable generation. But there are so many other things that we need to do. And frankly, with the the incentives that have been put in place recently and just the lower cost of clean energy uh, over the past several years anyway, it's just becoming more attractive. I don't think you're going to have to force people to do it. I think they're going to want to do it. They're really going to be more concerned about how do I do it? Where do I put it? What does it connect to? And can we store it You know, when we're overproducing so that we can use it when we're underproducing? Yeah, I agree with everything that Shane said. I think there's like nine gigawatts in Cal ISO just stuck. People will build renewable energy projects more than enough that we need, but they have to be able to get them, you know, permitted and cited. And just, you know, for our listeners, if you did not get a chance to listen to Decarb Madness or you forgot, we had these legendary minds on like Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes, but I did win Decarb Madness. I mean, when he said legendary, I felt like Brandon's being way too generous. I didn't know he was building himself up through that process. <laughs> I was building up Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes. Only so you could point out that you won. <laughs> I'm just saying. I went up against, you know, they were the, they. it was an underdog. You know, I was a 16 seed in that D-card madness. They were number one seed. I won. Uh, it was a big upset. Big upset. Cinderella story. Trophy to prove it. That's right. Jesse Jenkins, assistant professor of macro scale energy systems at Princeton University, Leah Stokes, assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, both enormous leaders. Everybody knows them in our space. Uh, But we did evaluate these brackets of policies after March Madness based on what would not only deliver the greatest carbon reductions, but also would be feasible. And we had our Twitter audience weigh in on what that would look like. And we had the experts at Energy Innovation, which had a policy simulator we used, weigh in on what actually would have the biggest emissions impact. And yeah, I forgot, Brandon, you won. I did not forget. (laughs) I did not forget. Political Climate is brought to you by Climate Positive, a podcast produced by the pioneering climate investment firm Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure. Hosted by Chad Reed, Gil Jenkins, and Hilary Langer, Climate Positive features in-depth conversations with a broad range of business leaders, authors, advocates, and policymakers who are committed to making a difference. Listen to Max Rodriguez, an attorney with Pollock Cohen, unpack the arguments that support the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act and what impact the language in the IRA may have in the ongoing legal battle. Or find out how Tim Brown, as CEO of Tradewater, scours the globe to aggregate potent gases and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere. 
Climate Positive unpacks their guests' personal journeys while discussing the emerging energy and environmental trends that will drive us all toward a more just and sustainable future. Check it out and subscribe to Climate Positive wherever you get your podcasts. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Well, as we round the bend on this journey back in time, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take a little bit of a closer look at some of the opposition that climate and clean energy policies have faced in the past, and we could actually see a replay of here going forward. I'm reminded of an interview that we did with Trump-appointed EPA official Mandy Gunasekara back in 2018. At that time, she was focused on the clean power plan and fuel economy standards, and the Trump administration was looking to roll those regulations back. So here's how Mandy described why she thought the clean power plan didn't make sense. If you measure it in terms of climate change indicators, as the previous administration characterized it, so whether you're talking about sea level rise or temperature or overall global emissions, when that was actually measured, it was in an almost immeasurable way. So you were basically imposing significant costs on the economy. You're going to make the cost of energy go up. And for what actual impact on the climate? The constant talking point, but it was derived from an analysis done by the magic model where people measure these things said that for all of the costs and emission reductions of the clean power plan, it would reduce sea level rise by three sheets of paper. And I think that if you are of the mindset that climate change is catastrophic and sea level rise is going to up, go up immensely and temperatures are going to go up immensely and you're looking at the most doom and gloom scenarios that are out there in the context of projecting what the future looks like, if you are imposing billions of dollars on the economy and you reduce sea level rise by three sheets of paper, I think you're falling significantly short of what your overall objective is. Shane, looking at your crystal ball... <laughs> What should we expect from, say, even a future Trump administration if he were to be reelected or another Republican leader? Do we think we're going to see the same level of pushback or, or have we turned a corner on some of these policies where the benefits are starting to become more localized and real and we may not see quite the same pushback and the types of policies we enacted may not be subject at the very least to the same legal challenges? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to see a lot of difference in that space. Keep in mind um, that Conservative Republicans long before Trump have been anti-regulation as a general rule, especially regulations that, you know, they think are not authorized by the statute and that the courts traditionally have agreed are not authorized by the statute. So I actually think that interview proves out a lot of my thesis since we started doing this show together, which is you don't have to put broad based regulations on things. I mean, I think Saul Griffith, it was really interesting for me doing that interview uh, because he was talking about, we don't want to tell people what they can do less of. That's not fun. Let's give them great technologies and tell them they can have more of everything they want. And they're doing it in a way that's responsible. And they're doing it in a way that's good for the environment and good for the climate. So I think my thesis has always been, you don't need to over-regulate industries. You need to provide space and provide capital for technology deployment. And that's actually what happened. Well, that could be a lot of private capital, as Brandon talked about earlier, that's uh, money through tax credits and other programs that have been enacted over the past two and a half years. I don't think Republicans are ever going to really advocate strongly for a regulatory state. And I do think they will often resist a regulatory state. But none of that has hampered what we've seen over the past several years. And honestly, the Clean Power Plan was never in place for a single day. And that did not negatively impact any of what we just talked about for the last hour and a half or over the last five years. And I think that's the point Mandy was making. There isn't a way to significantly address climate change through regulations that can be issued by an administrative agency, especially when this is a global problem. 
And, and part of the, the fun of technology deployment is you can deploy these technologies all over the world, not just domestically. You can only regulate, you know, activity here in the United States. So I know that um, Mandy is not, you know, for aggressive climate action. We're not aligned in that way. But I do think the larger point about not using regulation as the best tool to achieve addressing climate change, I, I think that holds. One of the last quotes I want to share here is from our interview with veteran Democrat John Podesta, former White House chief of staff to President Obama and current senior advisor to President Biden for clean energy innovation and implementation. He's going to oversee a lot of how the IRA is rolled out. And he recalled in our interview how in 2011, President Obama was struggling to come to an agreement with the Republican-controlled House of Representatives on virtually anything. And I think we could soon experience a similar dynamic play out here going forward between President Biden and another Republican-controlled House next year. Here's what Podesta had to say. The House just really wouldn't go along with anything that he wanted to do. Uh, and he spent endless hours trying to negotiate with then-Speaker John Boehner, who I think is actually kind of a reasonable guy. But Boehner couldn't control his firebrands, whether it was on immigration, on the budget on other big things where maybe Boehner and Obama could have found common ground, Boehner couldn't bring his caucus along. So I think we're stuck with this pattern, at least until Republicans in Congress believe this is a a strategy that is going to doom us to the minority for a very long time. So we better change strategies. That was before Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the word firebrand has a new meaning with some of these folks (laughs) in the House Republican caucus. I mean, we're entering an era where the House will be controlled by Republicans, maybe similar to when Boehner was in control, now with uh, Kevin McCarthy. I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because there's some Republicans who probably support energy and climate policies that uh, help improve the U.S. economy, but getting everyone in line may be a challenge. And until Republicans feel that at the polls, which I'm not sure they do, to Podesta's point, we can't really expect that to change. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there are certainly far more Republicans in the House Republican caucus right now who support climate action and care about climate change. But there are also far more who are far more resistant to any type of action than than what we would have seen. Even within the caucus itself, it's far more polarized. I mean, Julia, you said a moment ago, a new Republican majority under Speaker McCarthy. We don't know that. That is the most likely outcome, but this caucus is not aligned. And there are several members of the Freedom Caucus, uh, and, and Brandon referenced you know, one earlier, who are not really in any position to compromise or do things uh, that might be in the, the global interest or even the U.S. best interest. And so while uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene actually has said that she'll vote for McCarthy for Speaker, my larger point is that there is not alignment across the Republican caucus on anything right now. And so, again, we have 71 members now of the Conservative Climate Caucus. We probably would have had five, you know, 10 years ago, tops. The flip side of that is that we also probably have 100 plus members who would never engage on any, you know, sort of meaningful climate policy. So it's going to be tough. Um, It's always the same thing, 218 plus 60, unless you have the ability to do reconciliation. Challenge for whoever the Republican speaker is, and you're right that it's likely Kevin McCarthy is, what will you put on the floor? We'll get the votes. You'll get the votes to do the things that need to be done. It's will you put it on the floor? Because that is the power the speaker has. There could be 350 members who would vote for a policy. If it's not on the floor, it doesn't matter. Julia, what's our record for longest podcast? I think it was actually one with uh, David Roberts that we broke up into two one-hour episodes so I think two hours. This is actually the end of this episode. I appreciate everyone going down memory lane. We'll close out with a quote from Greta Thunberg, who Brandon had a chance to interview in Vienna, where she talks about the work not being done yet, which is very true. I hope I'm having impact, but the thing we should look at is the graph would show how the emissions increase or reduce, and right now they're still increasing globally, so This is not over yet. Not even close. So that is it for now. We do have a lot of work to do outside this podcast in our day jobs to make this climate policy become real and show real benefits. And I think for me, what's just clear is that all of these conversations, every perspective has led to this moment, all the energy that's been put in from every activist, from every leader, from every business person. We needed it all. 
and we've had some major breakthroughs. So I hope we can do as Arnold says and make sure these policies now serve the people in the best way possible. And there's a lot more exciting work to do on that front. Brandon, Shane, any final words from you? I'm just grateful to have done this with both of you and the team supporting us. I mean, uh, I've learned so much. I've created some lifelong friendships, got a colleague out of this, a client. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Hello. (laughs) A a new boss, Julia. (laughs) That's been the best turn of events of all this. (laughs) (laughs) It's been like an amazing journey just to, you know, where we started on you know, trying to have a different conversation, trying to learn from each other in the dark days of climate uh, to where we are now. And it's been a massive change. And it's been exciting to have all these listeners alongside of us, been out at conferences and events and people have come up and talked about political climate that always made me so happy. And I think, you know, just like any great franchise, there will be another sequel. (laughs) Stay tuned. Shane, do you have any closing thoughts? I second everything Brandon said. It's actually been, you know, pretty wild to think back to where we were. And I think what we always said uh, was that we weren't going to change the world. We were going to create a space for dialogue so that we continue to get ideas out there, continue to keep Republicans and Democrats talking, normalize discussion around climate change. But the truth is, collectively, we actually did do some pretty significant work. I'm not saying we changed the world, but we were all three of us impactful in some of the policies that have been adopted over the last several years that will actually materially impact the trajectory of climate change. I've got to meet so many interesting people that I never would have come across uh, in my daily life. Um, I think Brandon hit on the head, just thankful to everyone who made all this happen. Uh, Anyone who's ever met me will tell you that I'm happy to share my opinion, whether wanted or not, um, after a few beers, even more so, but that doesn't actually work without uh, some structure and a team that can make it all work and providing this platform for us from sponsors to our producers and and everyone who's worked with us along the way. But it's really been a trip. It's really been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed working with both of you so much. I'm not going to make it sad because I don't have to because I still see both of you every day. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, you know, but it's it's just been a trip. It's been great. And and if you think about where we started, if you could put a pin in a map, you know, you, you see the stock market and you could just sort of see where the numbers go where climate policy has gone since we were taken hostage in the WeWork in Santa Monica um, (laughs) to where it is now. It's been tremendous. And also, Brandon, I think you still owe us uh, for a Beto bet, a dinner. Yeah. All I know is I think I damn near maxed out my credit card uh, when I paid off my my Beto bet. So we're going back. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Piling on the thank yous. Thank you to everyone who worked on the show. As Shane was saying, Maria Virginia Alano, our producer, Kyle McDonald, our editor, our producer, Victoria Simon, who helped us really launch the show a couple years ago with the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Speaking of the USC Schwarzenegger Institute, Allison Kay, Francisca Martinez, Conyers Davis, previous uh, helpers on the show, Andrew Robinson, Chloe Ziliak, and many others along the way. Also, my husband for putting up, I know, going way back. Also, my husband for putting up with the late night podcasting and editing and requesting to be quiet during these recordings. I think he's really hungry and asking me if we're done yet. (laughs) With that, thanks everyone so much for listening. It's been a real pleasure. We'll be back in some way, shape or form. Thanks so much for tuning in. I do want to like look forward to the future by again, looking back at the past and that reminds me of an interview we did with the Trump appointed EPA official. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying at this point. I want to look forward to the future by looking back at the past. You're like Yogi Berra. Uh, I was okay. like Matthew McConaughey. Like <laughs> exactly. time is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I'm so glad. This is... Um, this <laughs> you're like sitting in a Lincoln, like in those commercials, like describing <laughs> time is flat. Oh God. Um, she's got to know where she's going so she can get to here now. Right? <laughs> it's like, I'm trying to sound profound, but I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> up is up. Down is down. It is what it is. It was what it was.